Hi, it's Calvin Niles, the Mindful Storyteller, and I am delighted to share with you stories of awakening. Each week, I'm going to be talking to people from around the world of various backgrounds and experiences. People I love, I know, and people I admire, but also those who are completely new to me. One thing all my guests will have in common is that they have been through a journey of awakening. By awakening, I mean a call to higher consciousness and deeper self-awareness beyond material reality. These stories will be real, challenging, funny, stimulating, and insightful. We're going to take our good time with these conversations. So listen from your comfy chair with your favorite drink, or on your weekend stroll, your morning routine, or whatever makes you happy. Stories of Awakening with me, Calvin Niles, and I look forward to you tuning in. I think, it, I just think from a point of view of context setting, um, I would say I'm very, very lucky that I was born into a family who had a degree of spiritual practice already. Um, and that was, I think, one of the foundational aspects of me being able to weave my own sort of meaning later on. Seeds were planted at a very young age. You know, there's these flowers, which um, they're, I don't remember the species name. They're so rare. They actually only blossom once every seven years. They're wow. extremely rare. And uh, I think they're in the Amazon. And it's kind of like that, you know, the seed is there. <laughs> but you don't really know until you come into blossom and it might take a very long time. Yeah. So um, I was brought up around like uh, metaphysics quite a lot, um, raised in a traditional Christian environment, you know, Anglican, blah, blah, blah. You know, that was the, the school system. That was just the way the culture that we lived in was. That was the dominant religion. But um, my... Mother used to own a metaph metaphysical bookstore in the 80s. And I became aware through exposure to some books just from seeing them. I was young, so I wasn't reading them in any intentional way. But I would see a lot of things around me. Yeah, um, to be absorbed in all of that, surrounded by all. Yeah, very young. and But my parents never tried to indoctrinate me in that way or anything like that. You know, teachers like Sai Baba, Thich Nhat Hanh, some far out stuff as well. It, it was all kind of mixture of, of teachers. Um, and I just grew up like that. And my, I guess, mother would have a lot of conversations with people. I would hear people from her spiritual group talking about certain concepts, but fine, you know, it's there, but it doesn't really mean anything. It's like when you're a child, Nothing really has any deeper meaning. Um, so I lived my life like that. I turned, I don't know, eight when my, my aunt died. And that was quite a big deal. You know, she, um, she had a stroke. And I actually remember the funeral very vividly, so vividly. I was completely fine at that point to attend a funeral. I was not, my mom said, oh yeah, you know, auntie died and we're going to go to the funeral. And we went and everything else. And I never forget this day so clearly in my mind. 
my cousins, her two sons, were at the funeral. They were a lot older than me. They're probably in their 20s at that time. And one of them, they're from New York. And one of them leant over my aunt's open casket and he screamed, Mommy! And he tried to pull her out. And he was so, I mean, grief, yes, but not. It was an energized grief. It was a wailing and like there was a lot of energy there. He was trying to take her body out of the casket. And it was like he was completely rejecting what he was experiencing. That scarred me. That scarred me. And uh, from that moment on, I, want, I never went to, wanted to go, ever go to a funeral ever again. By the time I hit 13, my... So actually, no, by the time I was 11 going 12, my best friend from school, we used to hang out together, play in the summer. Sadly, he took his own life because his parents were getting divorced. And my mother, who at the time came home one day, um, my father basically used to live in a different country. He used to travel with his job a lot. And so my mom said, look, we're not going to keep moving the kids around. You go away do your thing and come see the kids when you can and we'll send the kids to see you. So eventually one day my dad moved back. I was around 12 and about to start secondary school. And my mother came, she sat me down and it was, it all felt like it happened at the same time. And she said, I need to have a chat with you. She sat me down, we went and she told me, um, first of all, Justin um, died. And she told me that Justin took his own life. Justin's parents were divorcing and apparently it was vitriolic. I mean, I didn't, wouldn't know anything about that at the time, but apparently it was so ugly and it had a terrible effect on Justin and he hung himself with his school belt. It was tragic, 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 tragic. And it haunts them up to this day. Um, and then she said, um, and I'm sure my mother would not have, deliberately tried to tell me this at the same time so I felt like it happened all at once though I think it was it was definitely the same summer and she says look I'm moving out she was basically at burnout slash breakdown stage and she had to go so from that period of time on I would say I struggled without realizing I was struggling I couldn't engage with school properly. My siblings were all much older and had already moved out. Thanks for being part of this conversation. One of the things I'm learning during this series is that the chapters of each person's story are still being written. If you are conscious of a new story wanting to emerge in your life, but the clutter of your mind is slowing you down, a simple way to start is by decluttering your physical space. Subscribe and download my free ebook, Simplify Your Life, helping you to declutter and make way for the things that matter. Download your free copy at www.simplifyandmakespace.com. I avoided funerals like the plague. So I think I started to learn and, you know, kind of doing some self-analysis in a way. And you know, as I tell you this, I think I probably started to learn to bury my feelings very early, very, very early and park a lot of things that scared me. And I was very good at doing that. I think it's a, a feature of my personality style as well. But also, 
you know, maybe I'm sort of just lucky that I grew up in actually quite a secure environment. Although my parents, you know, although these these kind of little mini tragedies happened, you know, it's not nearly a nearly a fractious upbringing that I had at all. I had a very loving upbringing, especially my mother was super maternal. When my father moved back, he was this ultra strict disciplinarian, but I didn't really wasn't raised by him until I became a teenager. So I was already kind of big enough to make my own way to school, do my own things. I didn't need, it wasn't seeking, seeking, seeking that nurturing from him by that time. But I think I learned from the accumulation of experiences to really suppress feelings. By the time I was 13, my brother's best friend drowned. He was like a best friend to me. And he taught me a lot of what I know. He was Rastafari. He was vegetarian. He had him, my brother, and his other best friend had a company together where they, where they produced natural um, products and they did carvings and art. And uh, it was a Rastafari influence that really kicked me into a kind of a more conscious lifestyle that I felt was intentional by, on my part. Up until that point, I would say my conscious lifestyle was uh, <laughs> by default. <laughs> in, in, in some senses, then really is not conscious because I was very young, just happened to be breathing in this kind of environment. And that's when I started to become a bit more intentional. I was 14, became a vegetarian, became a vegan actually, and started to pay attention to things in a different way. But still, I wasn't in touch with my own feelings. I was very obsessed with knowledge then at that time. Then I started to become aware of all kinds of different theories and teachings and uh, even conspiracy far out stuff. You know, I was reading and being, uh, I guess, learning about. Eventually, um, when I was in my teens, I moved to the UK into London. Then I had a new lease of life. I mean, I became a new person. I came out of the shadow of my dad and I moved in with my sister who was living here with her family. And then my mother subsequently came. Because actually my, my parents are actually, uh, they're actually Windrush generation from the West Indies. So they were actually living here since the 60s. They'd only just moved around with my dad's job, in New York and so on in the 70s. It's kind of a bit like you with your travel with Kuwait and, and so on. My parents did a similar thing. So I guess my lifestyle might have been similar to your kid's lifestyle in that way. Um, and then when I got here, I, I started to flourish. By the time I hit 17, you know, I was basically a straight A student in my, um, in my college. That had distinction in every subject. That's when I started to get into media and communication. That's when I started to learn my talent for writing. I actually remember the uh, the head of year called me. We were obviously back then you're still writing essays on by hand on paper, right? It's no computers <laughs> submission. Good old days. <laughs> and my, my my head of year came. Um, I was told actually somebody fetched me. Said Mike wants to see you. I was like, what? Mike wants to see me for a meeting? Strange. So I go and Mike holds up my paper and he says, uh, I think it was a, some piece of journalism. It was an essay about it was some sort of journalistic type of thing. And he held it up and he said, you wrote this. 
And I was like, yeah, I thought he was going to accuse me of plagiarism. He said, you're a first year student in college. This is second year university. This is really good. This is no, he says, I mean, this is excellent. And uh, I'm giving myself goosebumps now because I really started to go, oh, my word, I can actually do good stuff. If, you know, I didn't realize that. Even though I hated school, I underperformed in secondary school, you know, never wanted to be there. It was a big failure. And then suddenly, with this new lease of life, I started to flourish, started to blossom, started to find my gifts and talents and started to be recognized. And, uh, and then I just ended up performing, being the top performer without even trying like I loved it I just loved the whole experience so I started to kind of blossom and mature quite quickly and I continued through life until I got to this point which is where I guess um the challenges started to become more obvious so up until then it was cruise mode life is good I can't believe this is so amazing new lease of life is new fresh opportunity for me to shine i went to university wasn't that great it was film actually and you know i love stories as you know and i'm very into them but i did i wanted to make them i wanted to tell the story i didn't want to just write analysis about them i was good at writing but i didn't want to do that so i had my first kind of i was only 19 by the way and i went what is it i want to do in life and I remember being eight and nine, flying to see my dad when he lived in a different country. He was actually a diplomat, so I was very lucky. He used to fly first class, British oh. Airways. <laughs> and uh, British Airways, they would look after me, you know, unaccompanied minor. They'd take me up to see, of course, there was no security in the cockpits back then. Anybody could go and knock on the door and the pilots was, oh, hey, you want to see this button? And I fell in love and for up until... From the age of eight or nine up until I was 15, I wanted to be a pilot. But when I underperformed in school, I was like, nah, this is not going to work. When I hit that first question of what I'm going to do, I then said, right, I said I'm going to be a pilot. So I went and I got a job in the airlines. I was 19. I saw a job for Virgin Atlantic, got the job. I was still in uni. And then I said, that's it. I'm finishing uni. I'm going to drop out. I'm going to do this job full time. Then I started to train to become an airline pilot. But this is where things got real. I met my wife there in that role. And when we met, it was a tumultuous start to our relationship. It was good. All relationships start out fun and, you know, you have all the buzz of the addiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was tumultuous. It was rocky. Um, and we got through that. It's tumultuous and rocky in the... Not in, the, not in the kind of deep and meaningful sense, more in the kind of personality, you know, like intense lovers kind of sense, you know. That all made it even more fun, you know. And uh, then we eventually got married and started a family. By that time, I would say I switched off to my, or would I say dampened my spiritual connection. I don't think it's possible entirely to completely switch off your spiritual connection, but I think your level of consciousness can certainly decrease. <laughs> and I think mine did. And this is all of the suppression and inability to face feelings that I think was causing this, um, that I was so good at doing. 
I just didn't realize it. Actually, I didn't realize it. So I spent the next 10 years in a marriage with a house and a family. So, you know, the family grew, we had kids, so on and so forth. And um, I was kind of on autopilot, actually. We had all of the traditional pleasures of life from the point of views. We had a house, we had money in the bank. We both were, you know, we did well, you know. I mean, I'm not saying every single year was a breeze. You know, sometimes we had to make tough decisions. And one of those tough decisions was when I decided to stop flying, to stop training to fly. And that was a good, I was almost 30 by this time. <laughs> uh, so, you know, your self-funding, when you're self-funding flying is very expensive. Yeah. So I didn't have a whole big chunk of cash to just go and spend a hundred grand on flying. So I did it slowly and I said, well, this airline's not paying me enough. So earlier on when we got married, I actually left and joined the railway to help me fund my flying because the railway paid a lot more money. And then that carried on, as I mentioned, for good. I was actually on the railway for 12 years, actually. That carried on up until my 30s. But just before I hit 30, I was like, well, this flying thing, I've done all my professional exams. I put my head down. I've proved to myself I've got the academic ability. I can do such and such and such. And I was just enraptured by all of the traditional sense of achievement. You know, I had to prove to myself, obviously, that I can do what I want to do. But also I was trying to just do normal things, ordinary things, get the career, you know, get secure, make enough money that we can have four holidays a year. And I know people who live like this and actually are quite pleased with themselves. Uh, but something wasn't quite fitting. And by the time I hit early 30s, the marriage started to shake fundamentally. Didn't realize it. Um, at the time, it was, well, I guess you want to win an argument. She's right. I'm right. You did this. I did this. The classic blame games. And so we're caught in the unconscious stuff that just plays out in these ways of interacting and relating. And it, and it got very bad, very ugly, very painful. And it slowly, slowly deteriorated over a number of years. Um, and everything, so bearing in mind, and I'll just say some of the hallmarks, for those, for that decade of my marriage, I do, I barely remember dreaming. I can remember some big, big, big dreams, which woke me out of my sleep and I was crying in them. But for most of my marriage, I can't remember dreaming. And the funny thing is, up until that point, before I got married, my dreams were a huge part of my life in a sense that I paid attention to them. I would try and capture what they were about. I would discuss them in the morning with my family. We, our family, do that. We pay attention to dreams. And then I just, for lack of a better expression, stopped dreaming. Um, then, so again, I feel like the tentacles of suppression that I learned to do so well, and I'm sure I'm not uh, unique in this situation at all, but, uh, but the tentacles of, of suppression and all of those things reached out from the past and 
made me actually an expert in this. <laughs> and I wasn't able to face anything at all. I wasn't even aware there's anything there. That's the truth. Um, I still had a degree of kind of, I, I say this very loosely, kind of enlightened thought. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a sort of self-aggrandizing way. I mean it more from a point of view that there was a lot that I knew, but that was all intellectual knowledge from reading and teaching. I actually knew nothing really truly new. So once the marriage eventually broke down, the pain of the marriage breaking down, especially because, you know, my wife at the time had the right combination of gifts and talents to bring them out, bring the pain out, shall we say. <laughs> um, I didn't call them gifts and talents at the time, that's for sure. <laughs> But, oh, but, <laughs> but I reckon I certainly recognize it now as absolutely the right person for me to really awaken. Uh, to, to or shall I say to take my big first big wake up moment. Up until that point, it's slight little ripples here and there, and you know, everybody has moments of enlivenment. I've had them, you know, in moments of nature, growing up by the seaside. I've had them in just wandering off on my own on you know when, when i was tiny growing up in the caribbean in, in a safe area and the whole village looks out for you so you wander off and your parents uh, their parents don't see you for hours oh have you seen they just ring down the road oh, oh call marva uh, have you seen calvin oh i saw him at, uh, just before midday actually oh no wonder if he's down by mikey uh, then they'll call uh joan have you seen it and it was all like fine and in those moments i'll just wander off and look at the blackbirds or you know pick fruits that growing wild on the side and i think this is like little micro moments there was no consciousness there so at, at least not like an intentionality behind the activities so once the marriage ended and and it ended bad it ended bad it was vitriolic it was ugly you know, we both did things we weren't proud of, but I, I did some things I, I terribly, I was terribly ashamed of at the time. And I, it sent me into a spiral, actually. That spiral included drinking heavily. That included just a lot of self-destructive behavior. I just said anything that's self-destructive is just destructive, full stop. So it was just destructive behavior. And I was lost. I was lost in my life. So... Now I'm in my early to mid thirties. I moved out, I'm living on my own. For the first time, I've countenanced the idea that I am alone. For the very first time. I'm sitting in this nice plush flat, everything was shining, lots of space, dead quiet. No children crying. No patter of footsteps in the morning, no smell of baking, no breakfast, no coffee in bed. You know, school runs every day are not a thing. Everything that I thought made me who I was, no longer there. So my idea of being a dad, being a husband, all of this stuff, completely shattered. 
And because of the vitriol surrounded the breakdown, it was a shattering. Yeah. It wasn't like a gradual waking up one morning going, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, this feels weird. It was an absolute shattering. And I actually needed that because of my own gifts of suppression and being able to conceal and being able to avoid. I was so adept at that, that I needed this. I needed to be broken open. <laughs> so the right circumstances had to coalesce around my life. And one of those was the marriage breaking down in such a terrible, violent way. Um, as well as having to be lost up my, in my career. Uh, I was doing a job. By the time I decided to not fly anymore, I stayed in the railway. I continued in the railway and promoted and promoted my... I did it. You know, because I'm a go-getter, I managed to do a lot of things in the railway that surprised people. I managed to accomplish things for my own career that people thought were unusual, you know. Um, I've worked in different departments, different levels of seniority. So I had a very unusual career trajectory. And in some ways that made me an asset, but in some ways that made me a liability as well. Made me a liability and there was no specialism. Um, you know, I would have made an excellent general manager, but actually part of the business where I was operating in, they needed somebody who was a highly specialized person. So I felt like a spare part after a while. You know, and I was getting knocked back a lot. I was still doing a lot of writing at the last stage of my career, writing board papers, researching stuff and positioning them to the board and doing all this kind of cool stuff. So I had to make my job interesting. I was doing, it was creating, I actually create, the last role I did, I actually wrote for myself and I made the business case for it. And that was just my way of trying to carve my own satisfaction out of my activities. But it wasn't enough. And then once the marriage started to break and the career started to falter, everything that had any meaning in my life disappeared. The, the stability or the illusion of stability that it provided uh, crumble and deep fear, deep fear arising. Who am I without this? What am I going to do without that? What purpose does my life now hold? And also basic things. How am I going to even provide for my, I can't leave. I know I need to leave this job, but I can't do it. It's a secure, well-paid job. I can't just leave. I'm a, I'm a responsible father and all of these things. So First, the marriage went, and I found myself in this spacious flat one Christmas, and I just broke down. And I just, first Christmas I had by myself since the kids were born. Never had a Christmas without. I was not even a big Christmas person. I didn't even celebrate Christmas until I met my ex. So that was a hugely humbling moment. And then I started to realize, because I was lost, I started to realize I need to do something. Now, I'm very lucky, too, that I have good support around me. And so nobody cottonballed me, <laughs> believe me. Even sometimes I got very angry that nobody cottonballed me because I wanted pity. But the people around me aren't like that, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> um, 
I actually remember one time one of my best friends, we, we went to a conference in Farnborough Airport and I'm whinging, whinging, whinging. Can you believe this? I'm so angry. Oh. And he just went, Calvin, and he put his hand up. He says, I hear you. Uh, but Calvin, I just got to play something back. And, you know, you really are beginning to sound like a victim here. And I didn't even realize it myself. That was a big moment of, whoa. I stopped dead silent and I went oh huge moment and then I was like you know I got to do some deep work here and because I had people like that around me ushering me along the way I went into I was uh, reading this book which was meant to help you sort of connect with your higher self and there was a meditation in that book which is a visualization actually. And this visualization, as many of them do, they, they want to take you and ground you and take you into this imaginary space, which primes you to connect with your guard, your guards or guides or animals or whatever spirit animals or whichever language you prefer. I think in this one, it was uh, spirit animals actually, I think. And I rehearsed the script in the meditation. And I guided myself through it. And I sat, actually, I'm sat, sat on the very said chair right now. It's a kneeling chair, which I bought for my back because my back was giving me, I was just in crumbling in every way you could imagine. And in 2015, I just sat on this chair and I went through into this meditation. And I went down into the center of the earth. I've never declared this publicly to anyone, basically. Um, I've shared this story a number of times privately, but I've never shared this out there. And it was one of the most transformational moments I've ever had. I still don't know to this day what it means, but I'll tell you what happened. I went down into this garden, which was basically at the center of the earth. And, you know, it comes all come to life and, you know, you're safe. You've never been safer. And um, then I eventually invite any beings who want to present themselves to me to do so. And while I was there, a rabbit came out, a white rabbit. And I picked up this white rabbit. He just came to me and I picked him up and I held him kind of like in my right arm, like, like this. Mm -hmm. I just put him there. A snake came out and the snake came. I was wearing shorts in this vision and the snake came out, wrapped its way around my left leg, went up through the back of my shorts by my hamstring, up through the back of my buttocks, through the back of my shirt, put its head here on on the left side, on my left shoulder. It was like a cobra head, so it kind of just went here, and then it went like that. How did that feel? It was super powerful. I was crying, and I didn't know. I was so deep in this vision that I was but pouring crying, but I had no idea at the time. So I came out, 
my shirt was wet. My whole face was wet with tears. But I didn't know I was crying. I didn't know because I was in a different space. Uh, And a yellow-breasted robin came, landed on my right shoulder. And then a fox came out and sat right in front of me, like a really well-trained dog, just sat and looked at me and was like waiting for instructions. Now, I would have to go back to my journal to see if they said anything, because I can't remember right now at this moment if they actually communicated with me. But I don't remember them doing so. I just remember like a deep connection with these animals. And I never, I never even found the symbolism of it. But here's the funny thing. A few months later, a friend of mine, who I never told this to, actually, I don't think I told this to anybody, he says, oh, hey, what are you doing, man? What are you up to? Um, I was thinking of going down to Glastonbury. Do you fancy a road trip with some other friends? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we went. He said, let's go check out this cave. Um, I forgot what it's called because I'm not really that schooled up on this stuff, if I'm honest with you. But there was a cave there. It's very famous. There's this fresh spring. There's a, there's a spring that, that constantly filling up this pool that people can dive into, like a splash pool. So some people go in there to you know, cleanse their energy and stuff. And, you know, it's all Celtic stuff. There, you know, there's candles in there. And I went in there and it was just freezing. Okay. So when, as soon as I walked in, got this chill. But I now realize that that chill wasn't because it was cold. The chill was because of what happened next. As I was walking around, there was a part of the cave that had a painting and different artifacts with lots of candles, and there was a man there. And the painting was of a man with exactly the same animals I had in my vision, standing exactly the same way. The only difference was this guy was obviously, he diff- he had antlers on his head, he had like, you know, he was a he was a, an ancient god. I don't remember which season he beckoned, but I asked the man, I said, at first, I was just like floored. And I said, who is this guy? Who, what does this mean? And he says, oh, well, this is a god of such and such. And he welcomes spring or autumn. I can't remember which one. And uh, there, was, there was a profound moment, which I've never been able to give any meaning to, to this point. But I still feel that it's such a significant part of realizing that there's something much, much bigger at play in my life. Mm-hmm. Much, 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 much bigger. So that was one huge, like, explosive moment for me after that meditation when I came out and I realized I was crying. Another one was then having that encounter in that cave some months later, which I, which I mentioned to you was so astonishing because it was like, it was like looking at me. Obviously, a guy looks nothing like me. This is a European bloke, you know. <laughs> I'm a black like bloke. The animals. Yeah. But the whole setup was, it's yeah. about the symbolism, right? Yeah. And I was like, that's me. That's me. Why? How on earth? <laughs> um, and then Do the guy said... in previous lives, Calvin? You know, I feel my... In- my instinct is like, look, it's more than likely the symbolism of it than it is about sort of previous lives, but I, I, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't rule anything out. 
I felt like there was some meaning behind this god, what he brought. Um, and why those animals specifically? I'd started to research it, as you would imagine, but there was so much different stuff out there. I stopped after a while. I said, well, look, there's, there's nothing out here that's giving me a clear... I still feel like that's going to answer itself at some point in my life. Something's going to hit me one day, you know. I might be 75, <laughs> wake up on the train like, oh, I missed my stop. Oh, that's what that was. <laughs> um, but it was a huge, 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 huge moment. Now, by this time, I'm already practicing mindfulness. I'm already meditating as routine. Experimenting with all those different ways in to access different levels of, of voice of myself. Um, and that was one of my big, big wake-up moments. Uh, that really transformed the work that I was doing on myself as well. I mean, before that, I remember doing a um, full moon uh, ceremony in London. I was in my corporate job, wondering what to do with my life. And in the middle of this whole situation of being lost, and I saw an invitation in my inbox randomly. I don't even remember signing up to this thing. And I said, this, this is, and I was aware enough to know to read signs at the time. I said, this is a sign. And I went and I did that. I knew nobody there, never been. I went in a suit, you know, I was like a city bloke going into this thing. <laughs> um, but I think those are little ripples that guided me to these big explosions. Mm. Um, but I would say the big awakening then was, okay, you know, it's about you and your pain. It's about going into that space and, you know, seeing all of these beings and giving them meanings is good. Opens me up to reality and a reminder that, you know, you aren't making all these decisions by yourself. And you're not alone. Um, but what about what you're feeling inside? What about allowing all of that to come out? All of these emotions. And there was one day, I was still in my corporate job, by the way, while all of this was happening. One day, I was on the train to work still caught in this whirlwind of despair. And someone texts me and says, oh, have you heard about Paul's missus? And these are old colleagues of mine from maybe, I don't know, eight, seven, eight years previous. Same sector, still in the railway, but different roles completely. I'm now in like management head office and they're still kind of driving trains and stuff. And I went, I went, no, no, what happened? And then he rung me and he says, Paul's missus nearly died. I said, she nearly died? You mean she's okay? He said, yeah, she's okay, but, you know, it was touch and go. And he told me this story about his Paul's missus reading a story for, for their son to go to bed. And while she was reading him this story to go to bed that night, they both started to nod off and fall asleep. And something woke the son up. And when he woke up and looked at the mother, her lips were blue. She wasn't breathing. She was practically 
few more minutes later, she would have not been able to be revived. And he screamed a scream, Paul said, that you never, like a blood stomach churning, a, like a terrible scream that you never want to hear again, he said, in the rest of your life. And they called 999 and they sent, they said, look, ambulance is X away, but there's a fire uh, station near you. We're going to send the fire brigade. The fire brigade came. They got her, revived her, put her on the stretcher, got her to hospital. She made a full recovery, but she has no recollection of this incident at all. So I said, so Debbie's okay? He said, yeah, mate, she's fine. Everybody's fine now. We're just kind of dealing with the coming back, dealing, you know, the fallout of it. I said, all right, mate, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad that everybody's fine. I'm going to come and see you. I put down the phone. I got off at the station, walking to my office. I was walking from Waterloo to South Bank. Uh, so, sorry. I was walking from Waterloo to Blackfriars. And there's a church. I can't remember the name of the church, but it's literally right by Waterloo Bridge. Very famous church, which they feed the homeless there. It's right next to the IMAX. And I walked there, there's people feeding the pigeons and what have you. But as soon as I got off the train, I just, like a whole wave of emotion just erupted. I just started crying uncontrollably, sobbing like a child. You know, one of those, <laughs> like terrible. I was walking through the station and people were thinking, oh my God, I hope this guy's all right. And I just said, I need to go into this church and find some space for myself. And I went inside the, in the garden of this church to compose myself and I have no idea why I erupted like that everybody was fine I wasn't even like everybody was okay so I called someone and I said I don't know what's happening to me what's going on and they were like you got to remember that this is just a trigger for your own pain it's nothing to do with them. And I was like, yeah, but I, I, I don't, I'm not even that close to Debbie. I don't even understand. It's not about Debbie. Mm. It's about you. And after I cried and cried and cried until I felt like I could cry no more, my eyes were swollen, puffy. And I just thought, how the hell am I going to go into head office like this? <laughs> and, um, and then I was like, okay. I got to go into my pain. I have to allow myself to feel everything. And that's when I started to write more meaningfully. And I actually wrote basically a semi-autobiography, a, a collection of stories of my life, including the funeral of my aunt, including the flying journey and getting lost, including becoming a father, all of these things went into my uh, collection of biographical stories. And I didn't do that to publish it, to be honest with you. At the time, I wasn't even thinking about publishing anything. I was wondering what the hell's going on in my life. But it was a catharsis. And it was a way to allow me to go into these, these spaces of healing. So then the awakenings were more of ripples after that big bang a big couple of bangs after those big couple of bangs they were gradually 
I was gradually growing in consciousness as the more I learned for, of, of myself through self-observation, the more I realized that my pain is not only mine, <laughs> the more I realized that it's a kind of a human pain. So I started to, I own my pain, but then I disown my pain too. I kind of realized it's mine and I owned it, but then I also realized that this is a human experience. And these kind of awakenings are slowly happening. I was reading different books along the way that's helping me lots of different ones some were about finding your purpose some were about processing your pain some was about deepening your mindfulness some was about spiritual awareness um there was one i read called the initiation that was written in the 70s and i was just like whoa that book helped me a lot at the time um i was i'm a big reader anyway but I was devouring books and then practicing and devouring books, then practicing. And I slowly, slowly started to wake up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. It was all through my own going into myself, actually. Um, my relationship with my ex was still vitriolic at this time. Now we're going forward in times of years now. Um, 2015 2016 2017 by the time we got to 2017 i'd done a lot of work but i still wasn't courageous enough to act with my with my convictions getting these insights from my spiritual emotional healing and development not nearly complete by any stretch of the imagination but certain things are being made clear to me that i need to do like I need to quit my job, for example. And I just wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it because I just, you know, you know, there's an old story of, uh, they call burning, burn the boats. And uh, where, you know, soldiers, I think it was actually originally a Roman story, where when uh, Caesar crossed the Rubicon River at the time, Italy was not exactly what it was. The, the other side of the Rubicon was a, was a different uh, governance structure, a different country, if you want to say. And Caesar crossed the Rubicon with his soldiers uh, to take power. And of course, he knew that would be declared as an act of war. And before he even crossed it, he was waiting for insights from the gods, if you like, as to whether this was the right decision, cast the die, and this apparition appeared, and he said, this is the day. And it was alleged that actually, um, in many similar war stories, where when soldiers come to these kind of crossings, they would actually destroy their, their means of return. So it was like, well, you have to burn the boats, or burn the bridge, or whatever. No um, going back. Basically. No turning back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, burning the bridge has two meanings, I suppose. But if you cross the bridge and burn it behind you, you got to fight, lose and die or fight or win. That's it. And I was unprepared to burn the boat. <laughs> Even though something was pushing me in that direction. So eventually, I had a terrible car accident. Um, I was on my way to pick up my father from the airport who was coming in to see me. And it was. I left home. I was living in Surrey at the time in my flat. 
I left home at 5.30, quarter to six, around six in the morning. Finally got onto the M25, ha- having taken a detour because a section of it was closed. It was a very icy December morning, snow and sleet and ice. Lots of snow, but just before that, it was a bit of a uh, sleet and icy rain. So the road conditions were terrible. And I detoured through some leafy, amazingly leafy suburbs of, of Surrey, got back onto the M25. And the road is, there's a few cars, but 6 a.m. going out of London um, towards Gatwick. It wasn't too dense. The traffic wasn't too dense. And just in the corner of my eye in the fast lane, just saw something shimmer. There's a shimmer. And I was like, hmm? Hmm. And there's a section of that road where it's so old. The road was built, the M25 was built in the 60s. And they built it with concrete at the time. And there's still sections that are actually made of concrete. And to increase the adhesion, they've cut grooves in the road. So it's actually really loud road surface. But also it's not as good as tarmac. Uh, add to that the complication that I was driving a BMW, which is rear wheel drive terrible in icy conditions so my front right wheel hit an aquaplane on this ice and spun across the, f- the middle lane i was in the fast lane it spun across the middle lane across all these uh lanes of traffic without hitting a single car thankfully it wasn't dense hit the side reservation full on to the front first then to the side because I was spinning and the back. So actually the front back and the front side and back of the car is actually destroyed from the one car collision with a barrier at high speed. All the lights were out. It was a black car, middle of winter, snowing in the dark. And uh, I saw some other cars careering towards me because I was at 90 degrees across the middle lane. And I looked out, saw some cars heading my way. I said, they're going to crash into me. They can't see me. I grabbed my phone and ran across the road. And a truck managed to see me, put his hazards on, slowed all the other traffic down. Two women pulled over straight away. I said, oh, my God, are you okay? We're just on our way to a car boot sale. But we saw what happened. You are so lucky. I'm a first aider. You want me to check you? I said, thank you for being with me. Um, I feel fine. She said, okay, but we're not leaving you. We called 999. Ambulance turned up first, shining flashlights into the car, looking for bodies. Then they looked at me and the woman standing on the side. They said, which one of you was in this car? And the woman said, it's him. And I had my hand out and said, it's me. And he went, all right. And, you know, they're trained to be very calm and reassuring. He said, all right, come with me. Put me in the back of the ambulance checked me over only had a sore elbow that's it that week i resigned after the aftermath of that which was a which was a hugely life-changing experience um you know and it was a terrible day for accidents so i wasn't special i think when i was there the highway people were like listen i'm really sorry you're alive and you're lucky to be alive, to be honest with you, because lo- looking at the state of this accident, you're lucky you're not being taken away in a body bag. But cars are piling up due to the weather. We need to go. 
and they said, well, we can't go with until the ambulance goes. And they had a dispute with the ambulance company, uh, with the ambulance people, because they were like, we're not leaving him here like this, because they were worried they were going to shock. So they had an argument, and eventually the guy says, they, they made a call, and they said, we're going to just have to leave the ambulance with this guy, which is not motorway protocol, but these are exceptional circumstances. Motorway protocol is the traffic guy should leave last. So they dragged my car to the side, they reopened the road, and they said, we're going to call a tow truck. You don't have to go to hospital. You can go back with a tow truck. You are very lucky to be alive. You go safe. And I strapped myself. They strapped, told me to get into the passenger seat. The glass was gone from the front of the car. Back, the door was gone on the side, or snow falling straight into the car. So I put my gloves on, had my Eskimo jacket on, which I was lucky to have. And I just meditated for half an hour, 45 minutes, until the truck came. Because I thought, am I actually okay? I know how it's like to tell yourself you're okay, but actually that's a coping mechanism in trauma. But I, only, I have nothing else to do but wait. There's nowhere else for me to go. So you know what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to see if I'm actually okay. And I did body scan for 45 minutes. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And then I realized, actually, there's a bit of soreness in my stomach from the impact. Um, but that's just stuff jiggling around in the body. They did say that maybe if the brain jiggled around, it might have a little bit of uh, concussion trauma. If you feel dizzy or anything, take yourself to A&E. But I was fine. When the guy finally came who picked me up, we got into the car, the tow truck. We're driving away. And it was just silence for about 10 minutes. And then he went, what happened then? He fell asleep. And then we both burst out laughing, the heartiest laughter you could have. And that was the best thing I could need and have at that time. Uh, because I actually felt fine. And in any case, I don't cope well with people going, oh, my God, are you okay? You're so lucky to be alive. I don't cope well with that. Because I'm like, well, look, I am alive and I'm here. So there's no point in <laughs> my barking and harking on about that. So that weekend, I coalesced. And I said, this is another wake-up moment. This is another wake-up moment that you aren't listening to your intuition. And you now have met guides. You know you're not alone. You have all of these beings working to help and support you. But you're not listening. And I feel like that was another clear message to wake up. Okay, yeah, you're doing your meditation now. You're reading all these books and all that's fantastic. But you're still not doing it. You're still afraid to leave the fear behind. So I went back to work the next week. I had a resignation letter already written from like eight months before. I just didn't have the courage to submit it. And I handed it in. And my life started to change in a big way. Then, you know, did business, did all that, blah, 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 blah. And then after that, I would say life started to slowly open up in a meaningful way. I started to forgive myself for a lot of things. As soon as another ripple of awakening, because I'm creating more openings every time. More openings, self-observation. 
doing silent retreats on a regular basis, serving people. And slowly, 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 okay, you're starting to see, you, you know, now you're on level zero. You were in the basement before. <laughs> now you're uh, starting to come alive. And, you know, from time to time, I'll get reminders. From time to time, I'll get reminders. But that would that would be, I would say, the big moments. You know, relationships, huge. Um, the more vitriolic, the greater the opportunity. Um, the time alone, facing oneself in with oneself, <laughs> basically, huge moments of awakening. I went on a silent retreat after that, and. I remember now I've unplugged, okay? So I've uncorked myself. All of these things that from this lifetime that I've, I've accumulated have started to fizz like a shaken bottle of champagne, you know? And it's still bubbling over and still spilling out. When I went on the silent retreat, so much stuff came out. I even started to see things. You talked about different lifetimes earlier, but I can't say with any certainty if that was another lifetime. But I started to have experiences which you would say are akin to another lifetime. I've even seen and remember consciously now things from when I was 18 months old. Memories, you know, they say every memory is stored. The, the ability to recall them is hampered, but not the actual storage of it. And I actually woke up. I had one experience when I was on retreat. When you're there, it's long periods of silence and also uh, long periods of intermittent fasting. I'll say long periods, you know, 16 hours or something of no food and clean food as well and lots of early rises and I'm an early bird anyway, which is a very special time for me. But I remember there was one experience I had where I felt like I was actually floating in my bed, a couple of inches, just lying in my bed. And I felt like I just came off my bed and I was just lying in air. And I was having these kinds of experiences and I was just like, Whoa. And having these, powers of recall and I even remember saying to my mother I remember and I told her this story of when she chased me through the house we had these little cloth nappies and she was trying to put this nappy on me and I ran around naked and you know the cushions were red and, da, da, da. and she was like how on earth do you remember that I said I just I can't tell you how I could just tell you it just came up in this retreat all kinds of mar miraculous things started to happen after that Lots of synchronicity, countless, which I, I haven't got the time to go in now. Countless synchronicities. Loads of synchronicities coming in for you during this time too. So, so many tiny and big ones. There are countless. Countless. Um, impossible coincidences. I mean, for, for example, I did this retreat in another country. 
And I saw a guy there at the retreat and I noticed him before we went into silence. Because when you arrive there, you know, you have to talk a little bit to check in and whatever. So the silence doesn't start immediately. And I saw this guy and I looked at his face and I said, I know him. Never met him in my life, but his face said, I know you. Something about him made me recognize him. Maybe some people might say it's his energy or whatever, but I just recognized him and never spoke to him for the whole retreat, but I noticed him. He now had my attention. After the retreat ended and the silence broke, he just started vomiting out this stuff. Uh, not to me. I heard him talking to some other people. And, and oh, and she, uh, and he had so much anger and pain from his ex-wife and their marriage breakdown. And I went, ah, that's why I know him. Yeah. I saw his pain. Yeah, yeah. I looked straight into his pain. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to tell him he just needs to learn to forgive himself. If forgiveness is independent of the individual, you can forgive yourself and another person simultaneously. The power of it is uh, equal. And then I had another thought which said, no, don't tell him anything. This is his journey. It's his retreat. Why do you feel it's not your job, mate? You just take it easy. So I decided not to say anything. Then he came over to me and he says, hey, um, I'm making these little videos about this experience of this retreat. And I just wondered if you would be willing to say a couple of words. Uh, I'm just going to do it outside, out by the tree, da, 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 uh, whatever. So I was like, yeah, all right, sure. So we went. And we stood up by this tree. And uh, then I just said, yeah, my name is Calvin, da, 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 on his camera phone. And then he put the phone away. He said, thanks. Uh, for some reason, I, some, I couldn't help myself. I just put my hand on his shoulder and said, you know, I just want you to know that I see your pain. And if you can forgive, then you will be free. That's all I said. The guy broke down into a heap. He couldn't speak. And he held on to me. And he just went, <laughs> thank you. And that was, that was a moment right there, even getting goosebumps now. And we left. Then all kinds of little funny synchronicities started happening after that, e immediately after that, even before I left the site. You know, I bought a ticket on the bus from the airport to the thing. Then somebody offered me a lift. Then somebody else was able to use my ticket. Then when I got back to the thing the guy didn't take any money then i needed a pen and when i looked on the floor there was a pen there's all kinds of crazy things is happening next week i'm back in london and i'm back to work and i'm working on my startup venture and i'm planning this and speaking to the cto and we need to speak to investors and da, 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 da. and i'm in preps in near waterloo station next to the old vic theater on the corner and i'm looking out the glass window and I'm on my phone with my headphones in like this. And I'm looking and a guy walks 
and stops right in front of me and he's looking around at the street signs or buildings or something. He's trying to orient himself. And I said, hold on a minute, mate. Sorry. I said, sorry, I, I'm going to have to call you back. And I put the phone down because it was the same guy. Yeah, I was just going to say, bet. So, <laughs> I've got goosebumps there. It was the yeah, same guy from that. the retreat. We flew there. You know, we weren't talking about a retreat in East London. So these kinds of things started to happen. And then the last thing I wanted to tell you before, before I um, stop rubbing you of your time was... Uh, I was, I was doing this, so I said, right, i got to keep money coming in. And this is a story I never told anyone. I was doing this retreat. Sorry, no, no, no. After the retreat, I was doing this um, fundraising stuff with my company. But I hadn't raised the funds yet. And I, I was running out of cash. I needed to keep myself afloat. So I said, you know what? I'm going to have to do something, but something easy, something. So I did a night job in a hotel. So I, I sort of like led this night shift in this hotel, you know, a small team, uh, two, three people on at night. And we had very basic routine. And it was from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So I worked during the day and I worked during the night. The only thing that saved me was my meditation practice. And I would meditate for an hour every single night, between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., depending on what was happening in the operation. Everybody knew this is what Calvin did. Calvin meditates. Fine. So it wasn't a strange thing. And I was like, right, guys, we're going to do this, 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 and this. Once that's done, I'm going to be doing my meditation. If you need me, call me. I'll be over here and da-da-da. And that happened for a while. And one night I was having this meditation and while I was having this meditation, I started to float in the meditation and spin. And to the point where I actually felt like I was going to be sick. I was going to vomit motion sickness kind of feeling. And I opened my eyes because I thought, I, am I actually spinning? And I opened my eyes, obviously found that I wasn't. But the sensation was so profound, I started getting motion sickness. And I was like, that is crazy. I've never had this experience. But I wasn't just spinning like this. I was counter spinning. Like the bottom part of me was spinning one direction. The top part of me was spinning the other direction. And I said, that's crazy. What? What is this? So I said, I, it was so mind-blowing, the experience, that I came home and I said, if this happens again, I'm going to sit through it and see what happens. So the next night, lo and behold, I started to spin. I first, I just sit there, I'm meditating. Then I kind of levitate. Then after the levitation, the counter-rotation starts to happen. And as that's happening, I am starting to watch. Fine. This is absolutely fine. No problem. I just stayed with it. And then the strangest thing happened to me. Strange to me. For you or anybody else listening or reading. Might not think it's strange, but 
the 23rd Psalm popped into me, but like popped into me, like, like if the words kind of went into my body somehow. Strange. 23rd Psalm. I know it from school. I know the Psalm book from, so we had to have a Psalm book in school. Um, I recognize the 23rd Psalm because it's probably one of the more popular ones, but I'm not, I've not been a big practicing Christian, big in church, didn't go to church every Sunday, nothing like that. And I started to decode the 23rd Psalm. And for the first time ever, I understood what it meant. In that moment, I realized, for me anyway, what it meant for me. And the interpretation of that was another waking up moment for me. It's not something I've ever shared publicly either. I woke up to this higher level of reality about ego transcendence. Because everything started to make sense about this thing. And I'm like, All of these stories are now starting to make sense about facing the devil and school and being tested and tried and, you know, being desireless. These kinds of things. And then I started to see, but it wasn't like a rationalization process. It wasn't like I was thinking it through. It just kind of like, it's like, if you visualize it, it's like the words were like a train. 23rd sounds like a train, like a train just flying through the sky. And they were kind of illuminated. And they physically went into my body and flowed around my body. And then the thing just started to, I just like started to have these aha moments. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Like, yeah. can't unknow it anymore. Yeah. And then I went, wow, wow, wow. So by this time, I am, I would say, consciously on a path of uh, practice, of spiritual awakening, not over trying, not trying too hard about it, recognizing that it is a reality for everybody if that's what they want. Recognizing the opportunities are in the pain. Relationships are a big provider of pain. <laughs> so it happens to be one of the biggest ways to, to serve ourselves. Um, and also the costs of not listening uh, or not walking the path you should be walking. I think there's some paths when you're not walking it, it's fine. Universe doesn't care. God doesn't care. You know, your higher self, whatever language you prefer, uh, there's a part of you that's like, whatever, make whatever decisions you want to make. You want you want syrup on your pancakes? Whatever. You want salt in your eggs? Whatever. But then there are other decisions that are fundamentally integral to your spiritual karmic journey even that you can't escape from. And as soon as those infringements start to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You get reminded 
like, like my accident for sure. It's, yeah. you know, this is not a question of... You're not of paying syrup. attention. I'm going to make it so loud mm. that you cannot miss it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So those are some of the big moments for me. Um, a lot of them are really kind of deep and profound and big. Others are really small ripples happening here and there. You know, a little insight from a meditation or just a little insight, just walking in the forest and, and looking at something or listening deeply with intention or some interaction with somebody who comes as a messenger or, or whatever. Um, they, the ripples continue to wake me up slowly, sometimes fall back asleep too. Um, so that's why I think it's important for me to continue to be intentional about it um, because you can grow in consciousness, you can also fall in consciousness. And uh, not that either of them are to fear, but why would you want to fall in consciousness? <laughs> Especially when you start to realize, you know, how much bigger life really is, how, how small you are and how big you are at the same time. All these paradoxes then become apparent. You know, you're small or you're really not small. You matter, but you really don't matter. What you do is important, but it's really not that important. <laughs> That bombshell. <laughs> 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 oh, brilliant. That's, that's absolutely captivating. I could sit and listen all day. That's amazing. In, really fascinating. And where are you now with your emotions, Calvin? <laughs> ah, the multi million dollar question. Yeah, yeah. I, f I feel pretty reasonably balanced. I still, I'd say I'm more. I would say my um, awareness has sharpened enough that I will see things arising in smaller increments. So, you know, some, sometimes in the past, I would easily get angry or annoyed or do anything impulsively or habitually and not realize that I'm already in that current. Then, you know, I would be aware that, oh, man, this is happening, but it's too late for me to do anything. Current's already got me. Now I can feel it sparking much earlier. I can feel my impulse to act or react according to some kind of energy state. I can feel and perceive that in a much more granular way than before. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, it's always super granular. Sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I see. And that's actually fine. And I've, I've learned to be very self-compassionate, very forgiving of self and things like that. But I would say that's where I am with my emotions. So there's an enhanced degree of awareness about them. Uh, and much more space for allowing than I've ever had. You know, because now, of course, mindfulness has taught us to bring that degree of flexibility and non-judgment to our experience, whatever that may be. And that's really been super intentional. The training of uh, mindfulness meditation is 
help with the granularity to develop that kind of attention to the small things. So that's why actually, you know, I have a poem. Uh, can I read it to you quickly? Yeah, 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 please do. A trickle is how it starts. Sometimes you don't see it. Too busy thinking about thoughts. A spark is all it takes. Not everyone notices. Too busy worrying about worries. When the rivers burst their banks and the forests turn to cinders, everyone in the neighborhood notices, wouldn't you say? Can you see the small things? Do you feel the tiny tickle before the pain? Or the little drizzle before the rain? Can you spot the wildness within the tame? Or your irks before you complain? Or is it all the same? Let me ask you again. Do you feel the space between your breaths? Or note the taste in your mouth of whatever's left? Do you feel abundant or bereft? Are you in the now or seeking the next? Can you do and not impress or give and not expect? Each moment is a new opportunity to choose. Choose to see, not just look. Choose to listen, not just hear. Choose to love. Choose to forgive, choose to let go, choose to live, choose wisely. Thank you for tuning into this conversation with me on the Stories of Awakening podcast. It was absolute delight to have you here. And this is just a reminder to head over to simplifyandmakespace.com to collect your free decluttering workbook to simplify your life and make way with the things that matter.